Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law, its relationships with society and its implications on our everyday lives. I'm Chen. I'm Dorothea, and we are your podcast editors. Today, we'll be joined by Dr Nicola Palmer, who will be discussing the UK's new immigration policy in light of the recent developments which involve offshoring refugees to Rwanda. Dr Nicola Palmer is a reader in criminal law at the Dixon Poon School of Law, King's College, London. Dr Palmer was previously the Global Justice Research Fellow at St Anne's College, Oxford, and governor of the Oxford Transitional Justice Research Network. She received her DPhil from the University of Oxford in 2011, and prior to this she worked at the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Her current work looks at the intersection of international criminal law and border control and this will inform her discussion today on the nature of the agreement reached between the UK and Rwanda through consideration of Rwanda's own foreign policy and historical experiences. Dr Nicola Palmer, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining us. Good, it's great to be here, thanks for the invitation. So in April 2022, the UK and Rwandan governments reached an agreement for transfer of asylum seekers from the UK to Rwanda. Could you outline the UK's new scheme to send asylum seekers to Rwanda following the enactment of the Nationality and Borders Bill? And could you just explain what the current status of the scheme is? So in order to understand the so-called Migration and Economic Development Partnership with Rwanda, we need to first focus on the UK. And the sending of people seeking asylum in the UK to another third country is, is it's underpinned by a two-step process. And I want to talk you through that two-step process because this needs to be our starting point for the discussion. Now, the first step is that um, the Secretary of State of the Home Department has the power to declare an asylum claim made by a person who's arrived in the UK inadmissible. Now, there has to first be this determination of inadmissibility before we even get started on questions of sending anyone to a safe third country. Now, this can be this used to be done under paragraph um, 34.5 of the immigration rules, which now has now been replaced by Section 16 of the Nationality and Borders Act from 2002. And the basis for inadmissibility in both of these is the same. And it's that the claimant, in other words, the person who's seeking asylum, and I think it's always important that we actually talk about it as as the person who's doing this. We need to really keep in mind that we're talking about individual people in all of these discussions. That this person seeking asylum in the UK has to have a connection to a safe third country. And, and, the, and the Act then lays out what those connections can be, all of which center around would it have been reasonable to expect that they would have made a claim in another, in another um, third, safe third country. So this is step one. The second step then is that once deemed inadmissible because they had or it could have been reasonably expected they'd made a claim in another safe third country, then the Secretary of State has the power to remove them 
to another safe third country. So this second step was was previously under paragraph um, 345 of the immigration rules and is now also under um, section 16 of the Nationalities and Borders Act, making it part of secondary legislation because it amends section 36 of the Nationality, Immigration and Asylum Act of 2002. And so this is the this is the key to understanding how we've ended up with the Rwanda scheme, because it's only with the Nationality and Borders Act and the um, and the immigration rules that preceded it that we've set up a situation in which before an asylum claim is assessed, it can be deemed inadmissible. And once it's deemed inadmissible, that individual can then be sent to another safe third country. And so the judicial review that's currently before the Queen's Bench Division in the High Court is to determine the lawfulness of the Secretary of State's decision to send individual refugee claimants to Rwanda under this legal framework. And so in my view, this is really where the heart of the issue is, and it's where we need to start the conversation. Um, And it's this legislation that essentially externalizes the UK's obligations under the 1951 Refugee Convention to any other safe third country. Um, But as I hope we'll talk about, the, the legal routes to challenge this are actually relatively limited. And so instead of the focus, the main focus of the judicial review has centered on the extent to which Rwanda can or cannot be considered a safe third country. And I was actually in the courtroom on the 5th of September this year when the oral submissions in relation to the judicial review began. And at the heart of the legal challenge is the claim that the Secretary of State acted unlawfully in her assessment that there were not substantial grounds for believing that a person, if relocated to Rwanda, would face a real risk of being subjected to treatment that is likely to be contrary to Article 3 of the European um, Convention on Human Rights. So in other words, if sent to Rwanda, the claimants would face a real risk of being subjected to inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment. And so much of the general legal challenges in the judicial review have actually focused on Rwanda and not on the legal framework of admissibility that has enabled the plan and the Rwanda partnership agreement in the first place. Thank you for explaining how the Nationality and Borders Act plays a huge role into actually understanding the background to the agreement. So you've stated that there's currently a judicial review in relation to the legality um, of the Rwanda scheme. Is the new policy legal and how does the Rwanda scheme and Nationality and Borders Act align with the UK's international obligations? So the question of is it legal is a question that the High Court will have a determination on earlier, probably in early December. But there have been numerous discussions and now I'll speak to some of the arguments that have been put forward before the court and other arguments that have been put forward in sort of wider debates. So the UN High Commissioner for Refugees has made a series of public statements about the deal and has intervened in both sets of proceedings, the first of which resulted in the grounding of the plane, um, which was bound for Rwanda on the 14th of June this year, and in the current judicial review proceedings. Now, On whether the Rwanda scheme meets the UK's obligations under Article um, uh, under the 1951 Refugee Convention, there is both there's both a broad argument and and a narrow one. 
So the broad argument is that in line with the preamble of the, of the 1951 convention, any asylum arrangements should advance international cooperation to uphold refugee protection, enhance burden and responsibility sharing, and be consistent with the widest possible exercise of the fundamental rights and freedoms of asylum seekers and refugees. So in the UNHCR's view, the UK and the Rwanda agreement clearly doesn't contribute to burden and responsibility sharing. But this is a very broad argument. It's an argument that's based on the bigger idea that the Refugee Convention is about this, this um, arrangement of international cooperation and responsibility and burden sharing. The, the Refugee Law Declaration on International Externalization, which I would encourage all of you to look at, has recently stated that that in that international law principles suggest that states are allowed to externalize elements of their asylum functions, but for good faith reasons. So for example, to relieve the excessive burdens on asylum uh, on a country in which is which is at the front line of a first wave of asylum, when we're operating in a context perhaps, perhaps of the mass migration of people. So it's, it's the UNHCR's view that the UK and Rwanda agreement clearly doesn't contribute to this burden and, and responsibility sharing, and that the initial screening and interviewing, which would take place prior to deciding whether an individual may be transferred to Rwanda, is not sufficient to discharge the UK's obligations to ensure the, the lawfulness and appropriateness of the removal. So this is so really what we're seeing here is a displacing of those obligations to a less economically and politically powerful third country, um, which is very far away from a notion of refugee transfer on a good faith responsibility and burden sharing basis. But in response to this broad challenge, Lord Panic, who was acting for the government during the oral submissions in the judicial review, stated rather succinctly that with regard to the legality of this externalization, if we choose, for whatever reason, not to assess a claim, but send it to a safe third country, we comply with our international obligations. So that is the key question at hand, is, is, is whether these externalization agreements really do comply with this obligation. So that's the, the broad argument, and that's the kind of response to it. If we're sending these individuals to a safe third country, there isn't a problem. The bulk of the argument then in the judicial review proceedings has focused on a, on a narrower argument in relation to the Refugee Convention. And so I'll, I'll talk briefly about that and I, I won't go into it in too much detail. But it's that the removal, that the removal of an asylum seeker to Rwanda would be contrary to Article 31 of the Refugee Convention. Now, this article prohibits the penalization of refugees on account of their illegal entry. So to, so to sustain this argument, the court would need to be convinced of the following points. First, that declaring claims by asylum, by asylum seekers as inadmissible, which we've talked about, and removing them from for deterrent purposes to Rwanda would constitute a penalty. So the first um, claim that would have to be established is that declaring a claim inadmissible and sending individuals to Rwanda would constitute a penalty. 
This means that penalty would need to be broadly construed as a criminal or an administrative measure taken by the state that has a detrimental impact on the refugee or asylum seeker. The second claim that would need to be that the court would need to be convinced by is that these penalties are imposed on account of a refugee's illegal entry or presence, which is met um, by these claimants because which would is quite persuasively met by these claimants because their their claims have been determined as inadmissible. The third is that it would have to show that the refugees had come directly from the territory where their life or freedom was threatened. Now, to for this for the inadmissibility um, for this to fall within the inadmissibility framework, this would require finding that, in line with some existing UK precedent, that an asylum seeker may transit through a safe third country en route and still be consider be considered as having come directly to the place where they cl are claiming asylum because they were only there in a period of trans in, in, in transit, in a period of transit, even if that transit is protracted. So that third step, there's a requirement that they would have had to come directly, but in order for the court to find that they have come directly and they still fit within this inadmissibility framework that we talked about, what we would need what they would need to show is that coming directly includes some level of transiting through a state. So either the admissibility criteria has to be interpreted in a way that is consistent with the claimant still being able to have transited a safe third country en route, or the inadmissibility framework itself is inconsistent with Article 31. So we have both this broad argument about responsibility and burden sharing and this much narrower argument about whether the admissibility framework, the legal framework that I've just laid out, and particularly the sending of individuals to Rwanda in application of it, contravenes um, Article 31 of the Refugee Convention. Thank you for outlining both the broad and narrow arguments in relation to the legality of the scheme. If we now move on to the partnership between the UK and Rwanda itself, the partnership between the two countries seems somewhat unusual. Rwanda's experience is in hosting refugees from the global south as opposed to the global north, and it's still amongst one of the world's poorest countries. Moreover, it is a country with almost double the population density of Britain. So given, this, given these factors, how was the agreement reached and why is it that Rwanda agreed to burden share refugees with the UK? So in the wake of the initial deal, the Rwandan award-winning author, Solistik Mukasonga, wrote in The Guardian that, that this development partnership coheres with a, with a deeply held set of ideas about Rwandan hospitality and histories of refugeehood. And, and this is true. It, the deal was, and it's certainly how the deal was initially discussed within elite circles in Kigali. So many of the, the Rwandans currently in key government positions were refugees who grew up in Uganda and in, in Tanzania, Burundi, Kenya, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this includes the current Rwandan president, Paul Kagame, whose family fled to Uganda in the first wave of ethnically discriminatory violence in 1959. So this sense of refugeehood is very deeply embedded in the current ruling elite in Rwanda. 
And since the 1990s, and at least as part of this historical trajectory, Rwanda has maintained an open door policy towards refugee influxes from the neighboring countries. So there are between 120,000 and 130,000 refugees in Rwanda today, mostly coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo and, and from Burundi. And their status as refugees has been determined through a prima facie refugee status determination process, which means that the refugee status has been awarded on the basis of objective circumstances in the country of origin, which then apply to the group as a whole. And in contrast, the, the UK scheme and the resultant agreement with Rwanda is focused on individual refugee status determination, which involves an assessment of an individual's account and, and circumstances. So what I think this, 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 this openness to refugees and individual Rwandans' um, history of refugeehood is certainly how the deal has initially been justified inside of the country. In the UK, the public discussions on why Rwanda has focused on, on a different set of drivers, and it's focused particularly on economic incentives. So from this vantage point, Rwanda's involvement and why the, the, the um, partnership has been agreed with Rwanda is transactional. So the funding arrangement included an upfront payment of £20 million on the 28th of April 2022 to allow for the preparation to allow for preparations in advance of these first removal flights. And on the same day, it also included this initial investment of £120 million, um, which was part of this new economic transformation and integration fund which was framed in terms of investment in Rwanda. This finan the financial incentive has actually been very um, publicly reported in the UK press, um, but it also formed part of the oral submissions um, made by um, by Sir James Ed. King's Council, who was acting for who was also acting for the government in the judicial review proceedings, where they're afraid the government is framing these financial incentives coupled with reputational risks as um, as the insurance policies that the Rwandan government will comply with its obligations under the Refugee Convention in processing and, and housing refugees sent under the scheme. So there's been this very two dual discussions about why Rwanda that are getting framed very differently in the UK um, and, and in Kigali. Now, I think both of these explanations for why Rwanda um, explain part, but not all, of the picture. In the Rwandan President Paul Kagame's first public address after the conclusion of the UK agreement, he directly connected this, the potential deportation of Rwandans under this scheme with the Rwandan government's really strong push to extradite five genocide suspects who are here in the UK back to Rwanda to face trial for, for charges of, of their involvement in the 1994 genocide. And so I, I have argued that the, the Rwandan government has long recognized that border control is, is setting the terms of global South-North engagement and that it provides a basis um, on which states are willing to commit resources, particularly um, towards particular policies. And so that this, this scheme um, has drawn on a set of networks that were actually put in place as part of a 15-year process under which the global pursuit of individual suspected 
elected of involvement in the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi has helped Rwanda to establish this transnational network of cooperation among um, criminal justice and border control personnel. And this has included states with whom these refugee transfer agreements are now emerging, that of the UK and, and Denmark. Yes, that's fascinating that, in fact, Rwanda's own historical experiences and foreign policy influence are actually driving factors behind the agreement. And it's definitely an important point to note, particularly as the question as to why the agreement has been reached with Rwanda is not subject to as much scrutiny. Mm. So let's now move on to discuss your argument that the agreement gives Rwanda the opportunity to leverage with powerful states in further detail. Could you expand on the various power dynamics at play which underpin the agreement and what problems will arise if refugee policy almost becomes an extension of foreign policy? Mm -hmm. So Rwanda was was not on the initial list of countries put forward by the UK's for the UK's externalization policy. So from September 2020, the advice from the British High Commission in Rwanda was not to include Rwanda on the list of potential countries based on concerns over human rights violations for, for political opposition. And by by June, by the 10th of June 2021, the, the Foreign Office official stated that Rwanda may use negotiations to leverage political concessions, noting in particular concern regarding pressing for the use of the full designation of the genocide as the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi, which is the designation preferred by the Rwandan government. It must also be noted that it's also a designation that's preferred by some um, survivor groups within Rwanda, but the concern is that it excludes a recognition that there were moderate Hutu and Twa who were killed during the civil war and during the genocide from, from 1990 through up until July 1994. But what we've actually seen is that this slightly underestimates the Rwandan ambition in terms of the in terms of the political leverage possible. And on the 27th of July. 2021, the, the Foreign Secretary recommended engaging with Rwanda and, and three other countries, noting that Rwanda's MOU signed with Denmark provides a potential model for us to follow, and the Rwandans are, posi are positioning this in terms of a wider geopolitical perspective on migration challenges on the continent. And so Rwanda is very much seeing this as a way of making themselves useful to northern states in a way um, that serves economic interests, um, but also serves very particular political interests, because this network, as I said earlier, this transnational network of, of border control officials and um, criminal justice officials has really been brought in, into being through the work of the Genocide Fugitive Tracking Unit, which is a special branch of the Rwandan National Public Prosecution Authority that's been working with police forces, border control officers and, and, and prosecuting authorities around the world to investigate, extradite or deport individual genocide suspects. And so Rwanda is, is seeing the potential, has, this has both created the network that's, that's placed Rwanda and, and shown Rwanda the connections between and, and political opportunities of northern states border control agenda. And it's actually allowed the Rwandan government to, um, to show that it can extend its carceral control, it can extend its penal reach into its diaspora communities who are based um, around the world. So these cases um, that I've been tracking have concerned 102 individuals in 20 countries around the world, um, 
and they've 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 been over one thousand one hundred and forty six um, indictments issued against these individuals, all of whom are based in the diaspora or the the Rwandan diaspora globally. And that what the Rwandan government has been quick to realize is that when the the proceedings have been determined in relation to extradition, there's been um, they've been much less successful at securing extradition with the UK, France, Italy, Switzerland and Finland all refusing extradition and Denmark, Sweden, the Netherlands, Norway, Germany and the DRC allowing it. But when it's concerned border control, like the deep the deportation and immigration related proceedings have much more consistently re- resulted in the removal of residency permits, the withdrawal of citizenship, the denial of asylum applications, or criminal prosecutions for immigration offenses, as we've seen in the US. And so Rwanda has been quick to see that it's in relation to to border control legislation that they are being able to pursue their interests of tracking down individuals suspected of involvement in the genocide around the world. In doing so, they're able to extend the reach of the state into diaspora communities in, at the moment, 20 different countries. But it also then gives them leverage with those states to offer this this wider um, set of, of offerings for how northern states are dealing with with immigration, and that's where we see this rise in in Rwanda's role in these externalization policies. That's really insightful. Thank you for explaining how Rwanda has in fact seen the potential in the UK agreement and has actually used it um, the border control to extend their own foreign policy. So moving on to examine how offshore processing methods would work in practice. Could you detail case studies of any other countries which have adopted this approach? And is there any evidence in practice that this is an effective method to actually address the issue of immigration control? So the first the first part of that question is really to, to say, are there other countries that are pursuing similar practice? And depressingly, the answer is yes. Now, whether or what that is effective in doing, I think, is, is a different issue. But what we've seen is that this this idea of these externalization or transfer agreements first were first formed as early as the 1980s within within Europe, the United States and Canada. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples of that. But we are seeing a spread across jurisdictions um, with a very real danger, I think, of this becoming normalized. And I think that takes us back to where we started some of these discussions of the importance of of reiterating the central objective of the Refugee Convention as being one of responsibility and burden sharing and international cooperation in providing effective asylum protection. But we have seen a number of these externalization agreements. So for example, um, if we go, if we look in, in 2004, we had an agreement um, between the US and Canada and the US and uh, the US and Canada on their um, land border where you could try where individuals could be transferred back um, to the US and the US essentially was designated under Canadian law as a safe third country. And we then saw challenges in the Canadian courts that 
because of the particular conditions of detention and the much narrower um, asylum pro, um, asylum framework in the U.S. that this would this, that, that this was illegal, and it was initially as a as a result determined to be unconstitutional this transfer agreement between the U.S. and Canada um, by the Canadian federal court. But the, unfortunately, this was then overturned on procedural grounds um, at the appeal level, and so it is still in in effect. And we also have the the Dublin the Dublin regulation, which um, is which operates as a directive under the European Union. And here we have a, a situation where members, which where it lays out the responsibilities that member states have to um, to examining a particular asylum application. And and in this one, the the default is that it's the it's the state of entry that has the responsibility to to assess asylum applications. But this responsibility can be transferred to another country if another third state, if that person, if the claimant concerned, has a connection to that case. And so what we're seeing in the in the UK legislation is kind of a, a reorientation of this idea of connection of connection to a safe third country, of saying actually not they, that individual has a connection to us, but rather they have a connection to another country that means that they should have they should have had their asylum claim processed um, in that third country and in other words then making it inadmissible before the UK so you're seeing similar terms in in these legal arrangements that are that are being used to very different effect um, we obviously also see the the Australian examples where we've seen offshore processing in Nauru and and Papua New Guinea, where that's the the processing itself is happening under Australian immigration law, but it's being done in Nauru and and PNG. And then in Israel, we've also Israel also pursued a number of externalization agreements which um, resulted in at least 5,000 people being sent to Rwanda and Uganda. That was then overturned by the Israeli Supreme Court on a, ba on a concern that those individuals had to consent to that and that that consent um, wouldn't have been genuine. The outcome of that was Israel just removed the requirement of consent in the first place, but the deal fell through in the end um, because both Rwanda and Uganda um, stepped back from it. So it was more an outcome of political pressure rather than rather than legal pressure there. Um, and so so really we're seeing a, a proliferation of this. We've now seen um, the the um, legislation in Denmark that's also enabling this externalization, although with the change in government in Denmark there's now a suggestion that maybe the the particular agreements with Rwanda may not be may not come in, may not be agreed at the moment. So the, another example that we've seen recently was under the, the Trump administration. Here, the US had an externalization agreement with Guatemala, where people seeking asylum from um, El Salvador, Honduras, could be sent by the US back to Guatemala for processing. And so what you see in the Israeli, in the in the in this in this US agreement, and in the um, and in the Denmark one is a shift in this externalization from wealthy countries externalizing externalizing their refugee obligations and their asylum processing to poorer, more vulnerable um, countries. And so there's a there's a it really brings to the fore the role that borders are playing and the role that uh, uh, the role that borders are playing in securing 
unequal economic distribution um, between these states. And these agreements are particularly problematic. I mean, it is, it's important to note that, 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 that the, um, that the U.S.-Guatemala agreement has been terminated under under President Biden, but um, but nonetheless, it's a it's a particularly worrying orientation. Yes, thank you for explaining this. And it seems that, uh, as you've explained with the um, examples of other countries, um, that offshore processing means that migrants are being pushed into increasingly dangerous and precarious situations. So, if we now turn back to the U.K. and Rwanda agreement. Are migrants being pushed into unsafe situations through asylum in Rwanda? And can Rwanda be described as a safe third country? So I think it's it's really challenging to start to have to talk about countries as, as safe third countries. The designation itself is is really concerning because it reinforces the framework of of determining some some cases as inadmissible and others as admissible but but that is the legal framework at the moment and so it is it has been the focus of the judicial review proceedings is whether or not the secretary of state for the um, acted lawfully in determining that Rwanda was a safe third country and so the, the arguments have, have coalesced around three core issues. So the first of those is, is in regard to refugee treatment in Rwanda. And there have been instances um, of um, violence against um, refugees who are, who are based in camps. Um, there, have, there were also concerns about the individuals who were transferred under that Israeli agreement that I talked about earlier, who then given the conditions that they found themselves in in Rwanda, including having their travel documents removed, then um, left the country and, and moved on to, to, um, to other states. And then you, you're obviously raising the, part, the, the real possibilities of, of reformment. That, that first concern is, is specific to the treatment of refugees. The second concern is, is a broader one um, that's been raised against Rwanda very regularly, and it's a concern around freedom of speech and, and freedom of association in the country. So here we have um, instances where there are um, individuals who've been associated with, with opposition leader um, Victoire Gabiri um, have been arrested, um, and there have been various means through which the Rwandan government has clamped down on political opposition through the use of, of criminal law and also through um, very concerning allegations in relation to extrajudicial killings, so the murder of um, Patrick Karagea in, in South Africa and the death in custody of Kizito Mihigo as, as, as some of the most glaring instances in which we're seeing political opposition being um, oppressed in the country. And so what this 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 raises concerns and, and in the in the judicial review proceeding, some of these concerns have also fallen in, on in relation to the particular um, legal frameworks that could be used. So the Rwandan um, 2018 Penal Code includes punishing um, under Article 208 any person caught in a seditious group with the intention to harm the existing government or the president of Rwanda, even if the person is not um, one of the members in the leadership or does not exercise any role in that group. And they can be sentenced up to 15 to 20 years imprisonment. So we have quite broad um, potential offences 
in domestic criminal law in Rwanda that have been raised as areas of concern that refugees, after they've been processed or if they start to engage in any level of political activism, and I think this is key, I think the actual processing um, um, that Rwanda would be able to, individual refugee status processing, would be effective. The Rwandan government is a very effective administrative state. Um, it has been able to roll out very impressive welfare policies, um, very impressive, including a very impressive healthcare policy called Mutual. Um, um, and it has a very functioning administrative state. I think the question of concern arises in relation to whether or not these individuals would start to organize um, and, and start to present political critique. And there we've seen a really concerning practice inside of Rwanda around both the use of law and going beyond the law to close down um, criticism if it of the Rwandan government if it relates to a key policy issue or if it directly challenges the rule of, of President Paul Kagame or, um, or of the Rwandan Patriotic Front more generally. So those are the first two. There's this concern around the treatment of, of refugees and then the, the broader concern around, around freedom of association. And then the third concern um, centers on judicial independence. So under the current scheme, the final stage of the, of the um, individual refugee determination is the right to appeal to the High Court in Rwanda. And this is the only stage where legal representation is permitted by individual asylum seekers and potentially um, provided by, by to this legal representation under the scheme as it stands would be provided by two Rwandan NGOs. Um, and much of the assessment then turns on the robustness of the High Court as this final as this final route of appeal um, through this this refugee determination process. And here again, perhaps the the question around the UK's refusal to extradite five suspects to Rwanda in 2017 has become relevant in the judicial review proceedings, um, because. In those proceedings in 2017, the High Court upheld the chief magistrate's initial decision denying extradition. She held that the wider political context in Rwanda, which I've just outlined, meant that the right to a fair trial was determined and hinged very heavily on whether or not there were suitably experienced and resource defence counsel available. And her determination was that she did not, she had not seen sufficient evidence that there were, and that the absence of those effective defense counsel meant that there was a risk, a, a real risk of, a, of an unfair trial because of, and of the judges behaving partially and being influenced by factors outside of the evidence. In other words, that that would be a sufficient corrective to this wider to this wider um, political environment. But the absence of that in in the in the magistrate's view, which was then upheld by the High Court, meant that the that the the extraditions were refused. And so that case has been brought into the judicial proceedings insofar as it has been used. Um, to try to, to to make an assessment of judicial independence in Rwanda today. Yes, thank you again for explaining this. And it's clear that the, um, the political context of Rwanda could definitely inform the decision as to whether Rwanda is a safe third country. 
And so moving on to the UK's broader immigration policy and their attempt to divest responsibility, it's clear that this is part of their broader aim of deterrence and their hostile approach to asylum. So how has the UK's restrictive approach to asylum developed and do systems of deterrence actually work? So I think it's it's crucial to recognise that there is no evidence that these policies effectively deter, or certainly none that I have seen. And rather, I think what they're doing is, is much more about expressivist work. They're about public communications, about who should and should not be considered as belonging to the social collective. And so I think Emile Durkheim's work here is, is, offers us some really crucial sociological insights because, you know, it illuminates how law and particularly law that imposes penalties makes visible what he would call the, the conscious collective so of society, the way in which we form social solidarities. And so in this, different forms of solidarity give rise to different forms of punishment. And so if we look at it from this side, then the, the, the description of, of, of as, as has been spoken about in the general press, of sending people to Rwanda um, and, and, the, and the legal argument that this should be considered a punishment um, is, is reflecting a particular form of social solidarity that's being built here in the UK at the moment. And this is where the real concern for me lies, because this solidarity is one of exclusion and isolationism. And it's and it's a it's a it's this expressivist work that these that these that these legal processes and this and this underlying and detailed legal apparatus is then doing, and also the is bringing into being um, is really where I think the concern is, rather than any question of you know well is this actually deterring? It seems that those two arguments seem to be quite contradictory that on the one hand Rwanda deters people from crossing the English Channel and then on the other hand that Rwanda is a safe third country so could you expand on that slightly? Yes I think you're 100% right so there's a contradiction in in the political project of this of this Rwanda scheme and in the legal framework that's enabling it because in the political project Rwanda being sent to Rwanda needs to deter people who would like to claim asylum in the UK from crossing the English Channel to come here because Rwanda is then framed as so as so awful. But in order, under the under the legal framework that we discussed in terms of determining that that asylum case would then be inadmissible, in order for that legal framework to operate, um, Rwanda has to be determined to be a safe third country. And so Rwanda is operating, there's, there's a dual version of Rwanda. One, it's a safe third country. Two, it's a terrible place to be sent to and should therefore deter asylum seekers. And, and this is the, 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 the political contradiction um, at the heart of this policy. And it's also a contradiction that exists in, in the general literature on Rwanda and particularly the political literature on Rwanda, where on the one hand, Rwanda is a very effective state um, that has 
following the 1994 genocide, rebuilt economically and has secured increasing, you know, a, a massive fall in infant mortality and um, and, an, and an increase in um, GDP and in and in provision of public services. And on the other hand, it's it's spoken about as an authoritarian state that closes down opposition. And and so we see some of the contradictions of the safeness of Rwanda um, and the and the um, and the face of Rwanda as a deterrent in in the discussion of Rwanda as a country as a whole um, and in all of the academic debates on the country. It seems that systems of deterrence are based on inconsistencies and fallacies. So are there any alternative and longer term solutions to address the refugee crisis? Or are there any models perhaps reported by other countries that the UK could follow? Mm. So this the concern of this as a refugee crisis is the first point that I think we need to challenge. So Radhika um, Mongia argues that that today all states embody a historically produced colonial dimension where the citizen migrant distinction becomes one of these primary axes of, of differentiation. And so borders really what is what borders are doing are responding to another type of externalization and it's been the externalization of of the climate crisis it's been this externalization of wealth accumulation in the global north where the outcomes and the costs of that global um, wealth accumulation have been felt in the south and so borders are a manifestation of the the externalization of the costs of rapid capitalist industrial industrialization and so then we that shifts our orientation that that this isn't a migrant crisis the crisis is the the way in which wealth has been unequally and unsustainably accumulated in the globe as a whole and, and the movement of people in response to the outcomes of that, whether those are movements in relation to climate change or whether those are movements in relation to conflict or movements in relation to unequal wealth distribution, all of that movement is an outcome of that unequal and unsustainable wealth accumulation in particular countries and it's those particular countries as we've talked about that are really leading the charge on framing this as a migrant crisis so so wendy brown i think usefully asserts that the borders do not simply respond to existing nationalism or racism rather they active they activate and mobilize them so borders control through selective inclusions and exclusions, making this this version of good versus bad migrants, as well as and, and I think this builds on and and helps actually to construct colonial, racial, and gendered subjects. And so, so I don't say this lightly, but but looking forward. Um, where we're going with the with the realities of climate change and the increasing movements of people as parts of the world become uninhabitable, these types of externalization agreements create the foundations for for global apartheid that's that's designed to insulate already wealthy states from their responsibilities for the ex the externalities that their rapid wealth accumulation um, has has generated if we think about reframing the refugee crisis 
not as a crisis, but as one of the outcomes of the externalization of the costs of the very rapid industrialization and capital accumulation that we've seen over the last hundred years, then we can start to see um, where and what would be a more just response to that. And I think Nauru provides an interesting example here where you have um, a small island there that w- which was an Australian protectorate and subject to large-scale resource extraction before it became the site for refugee externalization. And so if we recognize that the that many of the, the costs um, associated with how um, wealth has been accumulated in the global north and the costs that many of the countries now situated in in the global south will carry in the wake of increasing um, climate instability, we can start to see a response to migration as being focused on one that should be about more equal resource distribution um, and that actually the movement of people and enabling the movement of people both creates safer borders and offers opportunities for income redistribution. I mean, we see remittances being the most effective way of redistributing income globally, much more effective than any kind of aid program. And so I think what this allows us to do is reorientate how we think about responding um, to the border crisis away from a discussion of increasing criminalization um, and increasing externalization and towards careful and thought through ways of facilitating the fairer movement of people, goods and capital around the world. So what I think this really brings to the fore is the centrality of making clear that any externalization agreements really need to be centered on ideas around burden and responsibility sharing and international cooperation, which makes the general argument around why these um, the, the judicial review and the inadmissibility framework needs to be challenged on the basis of the Refugee Convention really important. But we also need to understand the role that states are playing in, um, in, in pushing for and creating this, this legal infrastructure that requires us to think not only carefully about what the legal rules are, and, and, and the way in which public officials are acting lawfully or unlawfully, but also asks us to think about how that fits into a wider geopolitical setting of unequal wealth distribution and states operating in that unequal world to pursue particular interests. Dr. Palmer, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss the impact of the agreement between the UK and Rwanda and the UK's general approach to asylum. Your discussion highlights the need to question why countries agree to burden share and externalise responsibility for asylum procedure in the first instance. These considerations become particularly relevant when assessing the legality of the Rwanda scheme, as it's important to recognise that border control can actually be used as a means to operate in an economic and politically unequal world. Thank you for this really um, challenging set of questions and fascinating and reflective discussion. I've really appreciated um, the chance to come and talk to you.
That was Dr. Nicola Palmer speaking with us on the UK-Rwanda Agreement. For more writings and discussions on other topics, visit the OUULJ's blog and read our annual publications.